will be um, hearing from the word of the Lord in Exodus 20, chapter 20, verses 1 through 7. If you can turn there with me, I'll be reading. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. This is the word of the Lord. In his book, on the Ten Commandments. Kevin DeYoung writes about a crowdsourcing project that an Airbnb executive and a humanist chaplain at Stanford University undertook together. And the question that they asked is, so what happens if we can agree that we don't believe in God? How then should we live? And so they offered a $10,000 reward to come up with the 10 non-commandments contest. You could Google it, read all about it. 13 judges selected 10 submissions to make the list. And so I give you the Ten Non-Commandments. Be open. Uh, be open-minded and be willing to alter your beliefs with new evidence. Number two, strive to understand what is most likely to be true, not to believe what you wish to be true. Number three, the scientific method is the most reliable way of understanding the natural world. Number four, every person has the right to control their own body. Number five, God is not necessary to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life. Number six, be mindful of the consequences of all your actions and recognize that you must take responsibility for them. Number seven, treat others as you would want them to treat you and you can reasonably expect to want to be treated uh, oh, and can reasonably expect to want to be treated. Think about their perspective. Number eight, we have the responsibility to consider others, including future generations. Number nine, there is no one right way to live. And number 10, leave the world a better place than you found it. And so aside from the self-contradicting nature of many of those non-commandments. 
to say that the scientific method is the best way to understand the natural world and then to say in the same list that there's not one right way to live. To say we have full control over our bodies and yet then to say we want to be mindful of future generations. And so aside from the non-contradicting or the self-contradicting nature of this list, I find it interesting that this was intended to have a group of atheists come together and answer the question, how should we live? Even those who do not believe in God feel the need for a morality, a moral code in order to help us rightly live. They feel the need that moral beings would be guided by commands and rules that would lead humanity to flourish. And I believe there's an inescapable reality that humans are in need of a moral order. And that moral order is not meant to restrict. It's meant to help us flourish. It's meant to give us freedom. And Christians believe that that moral order that leads to that human flourishing and that freedom is found in the Ten Commandments. The Decalogue. Deca, ten. Log. uh, of uh, Iteration of the word logos, which means word. So the ten words that God has given to his people at Mount Sinai. And oftentimes when you hear of the Ten Commandments, you'll hear it referred to as two tablets. Commandments one through four, addressing one's relationship with God. Commandments five through ten, addressing relationship with neighbor. If you think about what Jesus said of how he would summarize all of the commandments, that's the breakdown he gave. Love God. And love neighbor. I wonder this morning if you believe that such a moral code can exist. And I wonder this morning if you believe that a moral code, laws of morality, can be given to help us find freedom. Do you equate laws with freedom? Do you believe that laws that were given such a long time ago are even relevant today? Well, as we continue our study in the book of Exodus, we come yet again to another unforgettable scene in this book. God giving his law, the Ten Commandments, to his people. God's people are standing in the shadow of Mount Sinai, they see and they smell and they hear all of the, dra- all the drama that's unfolding from Exodus chapter 19. For over 400 years, God's people have lived as slaves. But God has acted. He has set them free from their slavery. And the question before them is now that we're no longer slaves, how then do we live as a freed people? What does freedom look like? And before God brings them to the land that he's promised them, God desires to meet with his people. 
And this meeting at Mount Sinai lasts for the better part of a year. And as we saw last week in Exodus chapter 19, God makes a covenant with his people as the entire nation hears God's voice. And God sets the terms and the conditions of his covenant. And these terms and conditions are meant to to give freedom and to see the people flourish. Thinking about some 40 years after this incident at Mount Sinai, Moses would tell the people as they're ready to enter into the promised land, you shall walk in all the way which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days in the land which you will possess. Walk in the way in which the Lord your God has commanded that you may live and that it may be well with you. God has given us these commandments that we would know life and that it would be well with us. These commandments that we're going to consider over the next few weeks, they promise life-giving and soul satisfaction, uh, satisfying joy for every one of us. And each week, we're going to rightly understand the, the commandments so that we can faithfully obey them. Rightly understanding so that we can faithfully obey. That's not legalism. That's called biblical worship. And that's the aim. And if that's what's at stake then we could rightly title this sermon The Absolute Necessity of Worshiping God Rightly, which we did. Let me pray, and then we'll jump in. God, there is so much at stake. You are the Holy One, Father, Son, and Spirit. Help us not miss your terms and conditions. And so, Lord, with great need, we come to you. Meet us by your grace and for your glory. Change us this morning, we pray. And use this sermon to do far more than we can fathom or imagine. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open them to Exodus chapter 20. When Moses wrote these first five books, there weren't any chapter or verse headings. And the chapters and the verse heading uh, and the the numberings of the chapters and the verses, uh, that was added later to help us reference the scriptures. And while those additions of the chapter numbers and the verse numbers Uh, are often helpful in providing clarity and helping us get to places. The separation from Exodus chapter 19 to Exodus chapter 20 is an unfortunate one. In fact, I believe that it's easy for us to think about how Exodus chapter 19 ended. Look at verses 16 through 20. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were, were thunder and lightning flashes and a 
thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people were in the camp who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. And when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. I mean, I think we, we come to the end of Exodus chapter 19 and, and we can recall the spectacular sights and the sounds. And we get this sense that the most stunning thing about Mount Sinai is what the people saw. Like what must it have been like to have been at the base of that mountain and to see this scene? But the reality... is what they saw unfolding testified to the greatest thing that happened on that day. The greatest thing that happened on that day is not that they saw. The greatest thing that happened is that God spoke, they heard. While God revealed his glory in the fire and the smoke on the mountain, he made a fuller disclosure of himself when he began to speak. And what they hear in Exodus 20 is the pinnacle of what happens on Mount Sinai. And so as we read Exodus chapter 20, it's helpful for us to not think, man, all of the good stuff happened at the end of Exodus 19, and then we have his commandments in Exodus 20. No, 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 no. Keep those two things together. All of the sights and sounds were meant to ready the ears to hear him speak. And, and one more consideration before we jump into the passage, and namely the question of what relevance do commandments from such a long time ago have for us in 2023? I mean, is there much relevance? And, and hopefully as we walk through the Ten Commandments over the next few weeks, we will unpack their significance for the people of God at Mount Sinai. But if we ask ourselves, wait a minute, but wasn't this just for them? And wasn't there a point somewhere in the New Testament where Jesus said, I have come to fulfill the law? As if Jesus has come to fulfill the law, and if this was for the people back in the Old Covenant, then is there much relevance for us today? Should we even uphold these Ten Commandments? And I want to say, yes, these commandments were given at Mount Sinai as a part of the Old Covenant. When I say Old Covenant, God has always related to his people in and through covenants. And so, before the coming of Christ, God had entered into covenants with his people that provided the parameters for their relationship. And so, yes, this the Ten Commandments were given to a people as a part of the old covenant. And yes, Jesus did say that he came to fulfill the law. And most people who study this would say that the law generally falls into three categories. As we think of the law throughout the Bible, we see the, the law, kind of ceremonial law, the civil law, and a moral law. And when Jesus comes and this new covenant is inaugurated, we find that the, the civil law and the ceremonial law requirements have been upheld. 
those were, the ceremonial laws were pointing to Christ. And the civil laws, it's different because, because the nation, God's people, it's not a, a, a nation that we would think of nation today. It's a spiritual people. And so the Ten Commandments then really does, it, it encapsulates this moral law. Nine out of the Ten Commandments are upheld in the New Testament, and the one that isn't explicitly upheld is shown. Jesus would even teach on it, pointing to a Sabbath rest that is to be kept. So it's not merely that you have to keep the Sabbath, but there is a Sabbath rest that everyone is to keep. And ultimately, that Sabbath rest is found only in Jesus. I would invite you back next week to hear Micah preach on that. And so we want to say, yes, the commandments are binding on Christians today because they're rooted in and they display the character of God. They're in that moral category. And as such, they're intended to govern the hearts of humanity. And so, let's consider the first three commandments this morning. And the first commandment doesn't come until Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. And we read in verses 1 and 2, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Before the first commandment is spoken... The Lord lays the foundation of their relationship in who he is and what he has done. This is, it's so vital that we get this. The Lord does not lead with law. When we think about who God is, I think we can envision that he is a God who always leads with his law. And at every turn where God's law is given, before that we see reminders and we hear reminders of who he is and what he has done. And so for God to begin in this moment to speak, all of the, the, the visible scenery is playing out. Exodus chapter 19, and then the Lord speaks. And the first thing he says is not do this, but he says, this is who I am. And before you think about doing, this is what I have done. This highlights who he is. God tells them who he is. God declares his name to them. He made it clear that he wasn't just some God, but he was the God who has always been and who will always be. Yahweh, the covenant name of God. And he would be the God, and he was the God who was in covenant with his people. The same I am who revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. The same I am who saved them, who delivered them. The same I am who heard their cry, saw their suffering, remembered his covenant, and knew his people. The same I am who sent the ten plagues, who saved them through the blood of the Lamb, who held back the sea so that they could cross on dry ground, who provided food and water in the wilderness. The same I am who would say in Exodus chapter 19 that I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. 
before God begins with this is what you do, God makes clear that they know this is who he is and this is what he has done. And a God who is like this is worthy of anything and everything he tells us to do. The commandments follow this good news of undeserved grace for the people. They became his people before he gave them the rules. They didn't keep his rules in order to become his people. He saved them when they were at their worst, when they could bring nothing and offered nothing. And the same is true for you and I today. If we will know something of God's salvation, it will be owing to what he does and not what we do. First gospel, good news, and then law. And I would assume that some of you this morning are miserable trying to find acceptance with God and joy in God by working to get from God. And it just doesn't happen that way. It can't happen that way. We don't work to find our salvation. It is graciously given to us. And so we receive salvation by faith. And then we obey him as a joy-filled response to the freedom that he's given us. And so while the rest of the world and other false gods will tempt you to worship by telling you that if you obey them, they will love you. God in the person of Jesus says, no, 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 no. I love you. Now obey. Like understand, if you are giving your affection and your allegiance, your time, your treasure, if you're giving, giving yourself to something other than God, it is telling you, Obey me so I will love you. And Jesus is diametrically opposed to that. Jesus says, I love you. Therefore, obey me. You're now free because of my love to obey. Tim Keller said, we're not saved by the law, but we're saved for the law. The law is how we regulate our love relationship with God, not the way we earn that relationship with God. And all of this points to the ultimate way that we are saved, not by the law, but by faith in Christ. And we hit the first commandment. The first commandment, three points. Number one, do not worship the wrong God. Do not worship the wrong God. The first commandment begins here with whom we worship. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Why do the Ten Commandments begin here? Uh, why does it start here? But the placement of this commandment is not accidental because it is vital to everything else that comes after it. You shall have no other gods before me. 
And let's be clear, when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, that is not God saying, hey, listen, you can have so many other gods. Just make sure I don't fall at number four. Whatever you do, keep me at number one, and then it doesn't matter who comes after me. That is not what's happening here. The word, the phrase there, before me, can also be translated as before my face. And that's what it means. You shall have no other gods. It's exclusive allegiance and loyalty to me. If you want me, then it's an exclusive relationship. And so why start here? Why does he begin here? Well, I think he begins here in part because you can't break any of the other commands without breaking this one first. Said another way, if you break any of the other commands, it's because you've broken commandment number one first. This commandment is foundational. Having other gods is idolatry. Idolatry is having any God besides the one true and living God. And though in the Old Testament, it's very much localized to what's carved, what's painted, what's created... He has that in mind as he says this, but there's more than that. Anything that you set your heart on as your fundamental love and trust is your functional God. And Martin Luther, in writing on the Ten Commandments, says, I go to the Ten Commandments as the basic teaching for those who didn't know what it looked like to follow Jesus. And he says that idolatry is so basic and so deceptive that oftentimes we don't even know it's happening. To have a God is to have something in which the heart trusts in completely. So, what is it that your heart trusts in completely? That we have an ultimate source of authority, right? All of us, all of us can trace back every, every bit of authority comes from some source. For some people, it's my experience. For others, it's my reason. For others, it's tradition. For Christians, it ought be scripture. And so we all have this ultimate source of authority. And yet there's also a sentiment and a reality that we have something that we lean back on and we give ourselves to ultimately. And the Bible makes clear that if that is not this one true and living God, then we are idolaters. Idolatry doesn't consist of merely erecting an image and praying to it, but it's a matter of the heart. It's setting our hearts fully on things other than God. Whatever good that, that comes from God, we can easily set our hearts on that. I 
but also all of the Ten Commandments. I believe he starts here because all of the Ten Commandments belong to this exclusive relationship between God and his people. And that relationship is most distinctively marked by love. And I wonder when you and I think of the Ten Commandments, do we think of that? That this is informing a relationship that is marked and covered and cloaked in love. This isn't this transactional give and take. It helps us understand how radical God's definition of love and this, his relationship with his people really are. This God in giving of the Ten Commandments, he's not interested in finding customers. He longs for a spouse. He wants a people. In chapter 19, God reminded them that he acted in order to bring them to himself. And in chapter 20, he says, and these are the terms and the conditions because I want you. Because you are my people. And if you keep reading in the Old Testament, the prophets will show up on the scene and they'll say, hey, listen, God doesn't just want your words. He wants your heart. I would encourage you, maybe even sometime this week, read the book of Hosea. God's people have been flagrantly disobedient. They're looking to other nations for fulfillment. And in order to give his people a picture, God has Hosea marry a prostitute. A prostitute who keeps running away. And the Lord says, stay faithful. Stay faithful. You shall have no other gods before me. Disobedience to this God who longs for relationship with his people, it is deeply personal. You may not get offended when people walk out on you and when people cross you, but this God gets deeply offended. And not because he's insecure. He's the most secure being in the world. But it's that disobedience is a rejection of his love. And if you keep reading through the book of Hosea, it gets to the point in the midst of all of this language about his anger towards his people. God says, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over? This relationship is not rooted in fear. And so when we think of the Ten Commandments, we should think the Lord has given this so that his people would be afraid. There is a holy reverence and awe that ought to accompany what we just saw in Exodus 19 and 20. But the Lord gives his people commandments not so that they would be terrified, but so they would be convinced and wooed at his love and by his love. He's patient and he's tender towards sinners. 
Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love. The demonstration of his love is this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. No one else will love like this God. And so if you're here this morning and you're weighed down because of all of the guilt of things that you've done and things that you know you, you, sh- you should have done but you didn't do, the good news of the Christian faith is that there is a loving God who can and will be your God, not if you do enough work to make him happy, but if you will, with hands emptied, come to him trusting that his work is sufficient resting on his grace Jesus isn't just the greatest model for what obedience looks looks like he's also the greatest motivation for why we keep these commands because he has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves leads us to the second commandment. So not just, make sure you don't worship the wrong God, but secondly, do not worship the right God in the wrong way. Do not worship the right God in the wrong way. We see this in verses four through six. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So if the first commandment, is addressing the object of worship, the who of worship. Then the second commandment addresses the mode of worship or the how of worship. So the first commandment addresses addresses the who, the second commandment addresses the how. Do not worship the right God in the wrong way. And he begins by saying, do not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of anything that's created. The use of images was important to the ancient cultures. Think about this. People had been slaves to a very polytheistic, multi-god people. And all of those gods had some shaped, fashioned, formed image. That's why even the, the plagues were such an affront to to the Egyptians is because most of them were attacking a certain local little G God that the people would give themselves to. And God just plague after plague after plague showing I'm the one true living God. The belief was that the deity, the godness would be present whenever the image was formed. And what this commandment is is seeking to protect his people from is the Lord would not be present in any created image because there's not a created image that could hold the weight, the gravitas of the Lord. I saw something this week as I was studying and just thinking even about places in scripture where we see this. 
And I went to Exodus chapter 32. And in Exodus chapter 32, right, if you'll, we'll get there in a few weeks. Uh, Exodus chapter 32, the people confirm their covenant in Exodus 24. Moses then goes back up the mountain. The people are waiting, and yet Moses stays up there for 40 days. The weight becomes too much for the people down at the bottom. In Exodus chapter 32, we, we kind of see this culminating moment where the people are waiting. And what do they do in the waiting? They begin to say, we need to make a God for ourselves. You're going, no, 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 wait. Do you not remember the God that showed himself? You don't need another God. And so they begin to fashion for themselves they take all their, the, the gold, their, their earrings, uh, their jewelry. They take it, they melt it all down, and they fashion for themselves a golden calf. And then Aaron stands up in Exodus chapter 32, verse 4, and he says, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And then verse 5, tomorrow there's going to be a feast. And the feast will be to the Lord. And I think I've always looked at Exodus chapter 32 as a breach of the first commandment. They worshiped another God. And yet going back and studying, I think the breach was the second commandment. I mean, they said, this is the God that led you out of Egypt. And tomorrow we're going to have a, a festival and a feast for the Lord. Covenant name, Yahweh. They sought to worship God in this carved image. They thought, this is what God must be like. And so let's make him in our likeness. And they thought as long as they worship God, why does it matter the form? I mean, does it not seem that the most important thing is that we worship God? It, why is he sweating all of the details as to how we worship him because he is not the God of our imagination. He is not the God of our own discovery. He is not the God of our own making. He's the God who takes initiative and reveals himself through his word and humanity is not left to drum up ways that we can worship God. That's a grace. That is a gift for us to make God in our image really is to turn God's created design upside down. Do you remember Genesis chapter 1, verse 26? Then God said, let us make man in our image. Do you see what the second commandment is doing? It's reversing the order. It's undoing God's good pattern in creation. It's man taking the role of God saying we will fashion in our likeness who we think God really is. Man was to display and reflect the invisible God, but our sin leads us to make for ourselves an image of God. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. 
And you began to see, ah, this, it is the weight of this. It is not right for man to fashion and shape God into his likeness. And it is owing to God's grace that we would not make that error time and time again because he has safeguarded his people by giving us his word. And his word is meant to lead us to everlasting joy and freedom. Freedom from thinking that we have to fashion God in our own likeness. And this matters to God. Why? Because, well, he tells us. He tells us later in Exodus chapter 20. He says, for I am a jealous God, verse 5. So you don't craft and mold and create anything in the likeness of man because I am a jealous God. John Piper summed it up this way. My burning jealousy visits iniquity on the heads of those who bow to images, who serve images, who love images, who obey images. I am jealous for your bowing, for your serving, for your loving and your obeying. God says, you belong to me. I made you, not the other way around. In my study this week, I came across an interview where Oprah, when she was 27 years old, said that when she heard that God was a jealous God, it drove her away from biblical Christianity. This is what she said in the YouTube clip. I'm listening, and the preacher said, The Lord thy God is a jealous God. And I was caught up in the rapture of the moment until he said the word jealous. And then something struck me. I was 27 or 28, and I was thinking, Wait, God is everything? He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's omnipresent. And he's jealous? Like God is jealous? Something about that didn't feel right in my spirit because I believe that God is love and that God is in all things and he's good in all things and he couldn't be jealous and be those things. The vision of the Ten Commandments is shocking and offensive and counterintuitive and it requires the Holy Spirit to move to help us understand why this is important because of just how jealous God is. And God the Father is aflame with just as much jealousy for your worship as he was for their worship. I, I hope that sense can just fall on us today. Is He is jealous for your worship. He is a jealous God. And perhaps even more jealous because we know something that the saints of the Old Testament didn't know. The beauty and the worth of his Savior. He's a jealous God. Not as in a trite emotion. Because he's been offended or he wants something that you have. No, because he's worthy of everything you have. And he's jealous for his glory. And he's jealous for your joy. 
And when you bow to other things, he doesn't get the glory and you don't get the joy and he's jealous for that. And I love, he's jealous. And do you know how his jealousy is shown? It says he visits the iniquity of fathers on the children. And some people say that's not fair. It's not fair that children would be punished for the sins of their father. And the reality is that this is showing that all sin has consequences that reach farther than just the person sinning. And so whoever needs to hear that this morning, you're steeped in your sin and you think that it's only affecting you. It is not. There are other generations that run the risk of being affected and impacted and weighed down because of your sin. But he doesn't just show his jealousy in visiting iniquity on those who hate him. Verse 6, but he shows loving kindness. He shows covenant loyalty to thousands who keep his commandments because they love him. Four generations visiting iniquity versus thousands experiencing his steadfast love. The jealous God is a God of profound and resilient love. And we, we may think to ourselves, well, how in the world can this divine husband in his holy jealousy maintain these two things? Punishing sin rightly and yet also showing steadfast love to a people that he loves. How is it that he can balance both of those things? And we know on this side of the, the cross and the resurrection that while humanity was made in God's image, Jesus Christ himself is the image of God. And Paul says this over and over. Colossians chapter 1, he is the image of the invisible God. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 speaks of Christ who is the image of God. For anyone who has been reconciled to God through Christ, we are restored to this great calling that we are being conformed in the image of his son. And Jesus Christ is not merely a mold for us to, to be made right with God, but he's the only one through whom and in whom we're able to worship God rightly. When we look to Christ, we then are becoming more and more like Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 and so praise be to God that these 10 words at Mount Sinai were not God's final revelation of himself. No, he would send Christ, fully God, fully man. And during the time, he would honor and uphold every one of these commands. And so let's be clear, our God is not opposed to images He's made us in his image. He sent his son as his image. And he would have his people to look upon and be made into the image of his son. Leads us to the last commandment. Number three, do not render the name of Christ empty. 
do not render the name of Christ empty. We see this in verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. The name of the Lord is representative of his character. And the word vain means empty or nothing or worthless or of no good purpose. And so look again at verse 7. You shall not take the name. We could also say you shall not bear the name or take up the name. We don't want to use the name of God carelessly or wickedly or for wrong purposes. And so let's be clear what's not being said. What's not being said is no one should ever say the name of God. No, even the word Yahweh, the covenant name of God, appears some 7,000 times in the Old Testament. And so we don't have to play superstitious and say, well, we can't say his name. No, we can say his name, but we must not misuse his name. We want to avoid taking some of the truth about the reality of God and then having our thoughts about him in vain. We want to avoid taking some of the truth about our, our hearts for God and then having some of our feelings about him to be in vain. We want to take the expression of God's reality into our mouths and speak words about him, but we don't want to speak words about him in vain. We want to do certain things, but we don't want to do certain things that would reflect on his name in vain. And so the question then is, how do you take the name of God into your thoughts and into your emotions and into your words and into your actions in such a way as to not have the name of God be meaningless and wasted? And I think Jesus gives us an answer in Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, Jesus quoting Isaiah 29 says, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. So what's it mean to take God's name in vain? It means way more than don't cuss. That clearly is a part of this. But it's way, this is all of, this is Romans 12. I mean, all of my life is an act of worship. And so anywhere I speak the name of Christ, anywhere that I'm thinking thoughts of Christ, anywhere that I'm acting in the image of Christ, which should be all of life, I don't want to make the name of Christ meaningless and worthless and hollow. Whatever I do, eating, drinking, I want to do it all for the glory of Christ. Colossians 17, whether in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so just a, a, two, three, three quick applications. We render God's name empty when we make oaths according to his name and we don't uphold them. To, make an, to take an oath and not upholding it in the name of Jesus makes hollow the truthfulness of his name. We also render his name empty when we accuse him of things that are false. 
We also, in calling upon God's name in order to manipulate a situation, we empty God and his name of the honor that's due it. So if I could just encourage us, we should be careful with God told me language. Because when we throw God told me language on things that he didn't say, we are taking his name in vain. Ascribing God told you to things where he didn't tell you violates the third commandment. But secondly, we render God's name empty when we use God's name flippantly or as, as a frivolous expression of shock or some emotion. And so let me just say, you should not be cursing. And while modern cursing is probably a little bit different, in the Old Testament, it was deliberate blasphemy. Here it's improper and inappropriate bad habits but anytime you call upon God in casual expression of shock or outrage or anger or humor you are dishonoring his name because you're emptying it of the right value that it's worth and so when you look at something and you're tempted as an expression of Shock, mad, you're tempted to just slip the name of our Lord out. Whether it's followed by any other word, just flippantly using his name is rendering it empty. His name is a reflection of his character. And his character is worth more than helping you express an emotion in a moment. And third, we render God's name empty when we act or think or feel or speak in a way that betrays the name by which we're called. We're called by the name Christian. If you are a follower of Christ, you are a Christian. And so anytime we live contrary to that name, we are emptying the name of value. Think of your baptism. You were baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that name was put upon you and you and I violate that name when we profess his name in speech, but we deny his name in how we live. Again, Matthew 15, 8. The people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Their heart is emptied of affections for God. There, his, the heart is emptied of admiration and cherishing and reverencing and treasuring his name. Again, John Piper, thinking about this, says, when the heart is emptied of affections for God and the words and words are emptied of the truth of God, then all thoughts, all words, all emotions, all acts are empty. Therefore, to take the name of God in vain is to take up some expression of the reality of God in our thoughts and in our emotions and in our words and in our actions when the truthfulness of that name is gone from what we've taken up. And so church, fill your words with the weight of God's truth 
and fill your hearts with the wonder of his name. So how have you done? I mean, we've only hit the first three commandments, but how have you done? Afterwards, if you've kept them all, I'd like for you to come up and give a speech. (laughs) Perhaps you've not done so well, and if that's the case, I just want to encourage you to join the club. And I want to remind you of something. The New Testament, you hear the, you, you, you see how you failed, you hear the standard, and perhaps you're prone to think, man, I've got to do a lot of things differently. The New Testament completely rejects the idea that we can be made right with God by keeping the law of God. Our salvation does not depend on our ability to keep the law. In fact, Paul would say in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, that one of the reasons that this law was given was not so that we could come to salvation, but so that we could recognize we are insufficient to gain salvation, and it would lead us to where salvation is found. Paul would say in Galatians 3.24 that the law has become a tutor, one that's meant to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. The law has always intended to lead his people to him. The commands of God are given to show us who we really are, to remind us of who he really is. The law of God was never given so that we could bridge that gap. The Bible tells us that the law of God is like a mirror. And a mirror is meant to illuminate reality to you. It's meant to help you see reality. The mirror has never done a good job of cleansing dirt off anyone's face. And in fact, if you were to break a mirror and begin to use it to get the dirt off of your face, you would find it's immensely painful and harmful. The mirror doesn't have cleansing power. The mirror tells you where to go to find that which can clean your face. The purpose of the mirror is to drive you to cleansing power, not to be cleansing power. The purpose of the law is not to make you right with God, but it's to show you you have to look outside of yourself in order to be made right with God. And the Ten Commandments will prepare our hearts for just that. The Ten Commandments will prepare our hearts to look unto Jesus the one that God sent to live a life that upheld his perfect law at every turn. That's something that you can't do. And the law will prepare us for Jesus, the one that earned death on a cross as a convicted criminal. That's what you deserve for your sin. And what he earned, perfect righteousness, can be credited to you this morning by faith. And what he endured, God's wrath leading to death, can be applied to you by faith. And we know that's true because on the third day, he rose from the dead, and that too can be your new eternal reality. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I would plead with you to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus alone. No other God loves like this. No other God can give you what this God can. Every other God will say, obey me and I will love you. And only in the face of Jesus do we see God saying, you are loved. 
You are loved. Like I know who you really are and you're loved. Now obey. What Oprah failed to see when she took offense at the jealousy of God was that God's jealousy was for his name. And his jealousy was that he would be supreme in our lives. And when that happens, we come to know salvation and we come to know joy. And I pray this would be true of every member of this church. And if you're not a member of this church and you're a part of another church, I pray it would be true of you and the church that you're a part of. If you're not a Christian, I pray that it would be true of you because you're willing to turn from your sin and trust in the finished work of Jesus. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Psalm 25, verse 11. Psalm 106, verse 8. And God saved them for his name's sake. Let's pray.